Hey, it's Tyrell Bramwell here, the host of Cross Defense. I just wanted to thank you for downloading this week's episode. In this week's episode, we sit at the feet of Neil Postman, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and even G.K. Chesterton as we consider virtual church and our life together. Enjoy the episode. Are you ready? It's time. It's time for Cross Defense, the time you've been waiting for all weekend long. You've been dying to get back to Monday. I know it's your favorite day of the week. It's the day you've been longing for because it's the day where you can listen to another Cross Defense. I know we're taking Monday and we're flipping it on its head. This is now the day that we long to get to. Well, after Sunday, of course, the day the Lord has made, the day of rest where we are with God's people, hopefully, where we are able to feast on the Lord's body and blood, where we hear his his under-shepherd teach us God's word, preach it from the pulpit. That's kind of what I want to talk about today. I want to spend the next hour talking about church, specifically talking about virtual church, online church, digital church. I don't know exactly the language you're hearing in your circles of people out there on the interwebs and uh, in your own congregation. I keep hearing this language of virtual church, and it's starting to bother me. Now, we've had a couple episodes earlier on during the COVID time where we talked about technology and the church and how we can use it and uh, some precautions we should take. You might remember Pastor Sean Kilgo was on the show back in the earlier days of COVID talking about this, and it was a very fruitful conversation. I want to revisit it today. We don't have uh, an in-person <laughs> guest to bring to you, but uh, we do have a couple guests. I want to let Neil Postman, maybe you're familiar with Neil Postman, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I want to let these two guys teach us something about virtual church, online church, digital church. But before we get ahead of ourselves, this is Cross Defense. This is the show where we equip the mind, where we excite the imagination, and where we comfort the soul all with God's Word because we have a fierce foe out there. We have an enemy who is ruthless, he is relentless. He is multifaceted in the sense that he is legion, the devil and his demonic army. Also, the enemy that is within our own hearts. That's right, the old Adam within, our old man who is a sinner and who wants to remain a sinner. And we have the enemy of the world. All the things going on in the fleshly world that we live in that is corrupted and is bent away from God we have a threefold enemy, if you think about it in that way. Our self, sinful self, the world, and the devil. And our only defense against such a foe is Christ on the cross. Not you, my friend. Not you. You are not capable of defending yourself against your old evil Adam, against the devil, and against the world. You need help. You need Christ. That's why you have a Savior. That's why He came to save you from your foe, to steal you from his clutches, and to bring you into his kingdom. And that's what he has done. And that's what this show is all about, getting into God's Word and getting into uh, topics about God's Word to really equip the mind, excite the imagination. Theology is not boring. It is not boring stuff. And to comfort the soul. So without further ado, we're going to talk about the virtual church stuff going on today. And we're going to let Neil Postman do most of the heavy lifting today. I, I was reading Technopoly. 
I don't know if you're familiar with this book, Technopoly. Most people, when they hear of Neil Postman, are familiar with Amusing Ourselves to Death. Both of these books are amazing. I suspect, I haven't read all of Neil Postman's works, but I suspect they're all worth the read. Uh, but in Technopoly, he raises this question about technology, and, and it really got me thinking about virtual church. It got me wondering if we know what we're doing. There's something to consider when it comes to online church. Why are we doing it? Do we know the unintended consequences that go with it? Now, certainly it's expedient, and it appears to be a practical solution to a problem, right? What's the problem? The health, health excuse me, can't even speak today, the health risk of COVID. Well, we've been to, we're being told that it's dangerous to gather, and so the internet provides this stopgap, this solution. We can just live stream the services. No one needs to be inside the sanctuary but the pastor. And you know, really, he doesn't even need to go into the sanctuary. He can, he can lead us in services from his own living room as we're all in lockdown or quarantine, these sorts of things. But what is going to be the consequence of our actions? Are we thinking about the long-term effect of what we're doing right now in this immediate problem that we're facing? Is virtual worship going to have a permanent impact on the church? What are the consequences? From what I see and hear, many are already preparing for virtual worship to be a mainstay. What will be the consequences of it? So, to get at that answer, or at least to begin to consider the questions that I'm asking, I think it's beneficial to understand something about the use of technology. And Neil Postman does a great job of kind of getting our feet wet in this topic. So he considers the topic in depth and in a time before the rise of the internet. Now, computer technology was just beginning to emerge in a popular way, a way that was readily accessible to most of us in America anyway. It was just at the beginning when Neil Postman was writing his book, Technopoly. And so from that perspective, from that aspect of it, he, he's kind of objective. He's not quite as biased as we are, and I think you'll find it refreshing. In Technopoly, Postman observes that every technology is both a burden and a blessing. It's not either or, he says, but this and that. It's both of them. And then he goes right on to say, immediately after he says that, he says, we are currently surrounded by throngs of zealots who only see what new technologies can do and are incapable of imagining what they will undo. Let me say that one more time. Because I think we too are surrounded by the same throng or at least their children or their children's children, who only see what new technologies can do and are incapable of imagining what they will undo. Here we go again with this imagination language. Can you imagine what a new technology will undo? It's very easy to get caught up in what that new technology presents as far as what it can do, but can you stop long enough to think about what it will undo? 
Postman says it is inescapable that every culture must negotiate with technology whether it does so wisely or not. You just can't get around it. You're going to have to negotiate with technology. A bargain is struck, he says, in which technology giveth and technology taketh away. The wise know this well and are rarely impressed by dramatic technological changes and are never overjoyed. Now think about that for a second. He's saying that the wise person sees technology come to the scene, a new, you know, a new technology, and instead of being like, yes, we're going to move forward with this thing, they go, mm, I'm not too overjoyed because I understand that while it brings a benefit, it also brings a detriment. There is a positive and there is a negative. Technology presents both. It giveth and it taketh away, he says. We gain and we lose with the introduction of new tech. Now, we are a tech-heavy culture, right? Silicon Valley runs the show these days. There is new tech coming out all the time. We gain and we lose with the introduction of new technology. The question is whether or not we understand that and are implementing the new tech prudently. Or are we adapting to it carelessly? How much thought are we giving to our use of this technology or that technology? And in particular today, have we as a church, or, or let, me, let me do you one better, you as a Christian, have you considered what will be gained by live streaming your worship service? Like, of course, yeah, yeah, Pastor Bram, well, of course, we're going we're gonna to be able to reach a lot more people. We're going to be able to get the gospel out to millions of people, potentially. Have we as a church or as a Christian, have we considered what we'll be gaining? Of course we have. Likewise, then, and without delay, have you also considered what will be lost? What will be lost by live streaming church? What will the technology do to our reality? It will not leave it untouched. It's going to have an effect on our world. And I'm not sure we think about that. I'm not sure we pause long enough to really consider that. That when a new piece of tech, and it doesn't have to be a piece, it doesn't have to be a phone, it doesn't have to be you know, the, the latest, greatest uh, eye device or whatever, it, it can actually be an innovation. All of this for Postman, all of this starts with sharing of a story, Plato's Phaedrus where the tech that was being presented that makes a change to the world, the tech is writing, the invention of the written word. This legend, as it's presented, is going to make it to where people no longer have to remember oral traditions and oral stories because they can look it up. It's written down. They can refer to the written piece of paper to find out the thing that they used to have to remember in their mind. There's a shift. There's a change. Something as simple as writing. 
So I don't think we often stop long enough and think about what we're going to lose. We normally think about what's lost later when it's already gone. But the wise person, as Postman says, is rarely impressed with a dramatic technological change and is never overjoyed. I love that. Never overjoyed by it because he realizes that with the success, with the win, also comes the loss. Postman notes that the benefits and deficits of a new technology are not distributed equally. This is also important. There are, as it were, he says, winners and losers. And he continues to mention that it's puzzling and poignant that on many occasions the losers out of ignorance have actually cheered on the winners and that some still do. Okay, so, so now we're entering a new stage of this conversation, this question. Now we're understanding that the success, the benefit, and the deficit, they're not distributed equally. In fact, those who are benefited by the technology will expect those who are affected negatively by the technology for them to cheer them on. And he gives a great example. He talks about the blacksmith at the dawn of the automobile. He says, some turn-of-the-century blacksmith who not only sings the praises of the automobile, but also believes that his blacksmith business will be enhanced by the automobile. This is how we act. And you can't, you can't blame the guy. Now, he goes on to say, now we know that the blacksmith's business was not enhanced by the invention of the automobile. In fact, it was rendered obsolete by the rise of the automobile, right? When the technology is being rolled out, it's hard to see what the negatives will be. We're also laser focused on the positive, that we can't really see what we're gonna miss out on in the future, what's going away. The long-term effect is very hard to determine. And some blacksmiths couldn't see how the car would put them out of business. They just they couldn't wrap their minds around it, and you can't blame them. You can imagine how they would think that they would actually get more business. It would be gangbusters for these guys because why? The automobile is made up of metal. I'm a blacksmith. I'm going to have a lot more work to do because that piece of equipment, that new invention, that new tech uses a lot more metal. You couldn't see the reality. You couldn't see how the horse and buggy was going away and there'd be no need for a blacksmith as the industry arose. You can picture this, right? Of course you can. And this is what we need to consider, my friends. We need to make sure in, in all realms, but especially when it comes to the church, that we have our eyes wide open, wide open when it comes to innovation when it comes to technology and the church's use of it. Now see, the LCMS, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, in particular, gets a bad rap for being a little slow. Right? We're, we're slow on the uptake. We get a bad rap for being about ah, ah, 20 years behind the times, usually, is how it goes. And, and I actually think 
that there's a lot of truth to this reputation. We're known for this for a reason. And I think that that, that being known for this is a good thing. I would not want to be known for anything else when it comes to technology and innovation and fads and trends. I think it's a great thing that we're known for being slow to the scene, to the uptake. We're not supposed to be, as a church, all about trends and fads and the new tech. That's not what we're about. The church isn't about chasing that newest, shiniest thing. What people see as slowness actually speaks to our resistance to the ways of the world. Or to state it positively, it speaks to our striving to be faithful to God's word. And so, no, I don't see it as a bad thing. I think, it's, if anything, it's a good thing. Because anything we introduce, any new tech, any new innovation is going to have a consequence. And we are right to be very careful and prayerful about the decisions we make. Whether it's about virtual worship or anything else, we need to be careful. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. We'll continue this conversation about virtual worship, church online, and let Neil Postman and eventually Dietrich Bonhoeffer teach us some things that we might want to consider that maybe we haven't even thought to think about. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Greetings, saints of our Lord. This is Pastor Brady Finner. I am humbled to be the new host of Thy Strong Word. Every weekday from 11 to noon, we will receive the gift of God's Word and Paul's epistles for our new series. We will travel with Paul from city to city, from letter to letter, as he encourages, exhorts, proclaims, and points us to Christ and Him crucified for your forgiveness. Join us, live or on demand, because God has gifts to give for you. I told you, we'd be right back, and here we are. We are back for our second segment of today's show as we're letting Neil Postman teach us a little bit about technology and what it does, its, its benefits and its uh, deficits, its detriments. And we're also going to get to Dietrich Bonhoeffer as he talks about life together. If I didn't tell you before, at the top of the hour, at the top of the show, if you want to get a hold of me, you can by going to TyrellBramwell.com. Just go to the bottom of my landing page there, my homepage on my website. Scroll to the bottom. You'll see the contact button, and you can send me an email. Email is probably the, the simplest way to get a hold of me, uh, unless you happen to be on the social medias, the socials, as they say these days. On, I'm on Instagram and Facebook primarily. I have LinkedIn and Twitter too, but I really just kind of check them every once in a while. I'm really focusing on Instagram because I like taking pictures and I like the whole, just the simplicity of it. It doesn't seem to be as dramatic as Facebook and things like that. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, so you can DM me over on Instagram or you can private message me on Facebook. You can post on my wall on Facebook as well. Uh, if you're looking for me on those two social media platforms, you can definitely find me at Tyrell Bramwell. That's my handle on both of those. That's my handle all over the social media realm, at Tyrell Bramwell, just my name with the little at symbol in the front. So you won't be able to miss me. Okay, I wanted to put that out there in case you want to talk about this topic. If you're interested in technology, if you're interested in virtual church, if you're interested in uh, this idea that a technology, when it's introduced, changes things and that we got to be careful and wise about it, uh, shoot me a message over on email or um, DM me or private message me, whatever you want to do. All right. So now let's get back into it. As I said before the break, anything we introduce will have a consequence. 
And we are right to be very careful about what then we introduce. We are right to pray about it. We are right to go to Scripture and to study what God's Word may have to say about the introduction of this new piece of technology, whether it's physical or whether it's an innovation that uh, we're going to implement a new way of doing things, even just a shift in how we do things. Anytime you're making adjustments and changes, you are introducing a, a, a change. That's why it's called a change. And things will be different. There will be benefits to it, sure. There will also be deficits. There will be drawbacks to it, negatives. So um, whether it's whether we're talking virtual church or we're talking, uh, you know, how you get dressed in the morning, put on your socks first. If, if you try to put on your socks after you put on your shoes, there's going to be a problem. There's probably a reason why we all put our socks on first. So I'm just saying. <laughs> Postman tells a great story. He tells a great story about the invention of the clock. This is what he says. Who would have imagined whose interests and what worldview would be ultimately advanced by the invention of the mechanical clock? Something very simple, right? The clock, he says, had its origin in the Benedictine monasteries of the 12th and 13th centuries. The impetus behind the invention was to provide a more or less precise regularity to the routines of the monasteries, which required, among other things, seven periods of devotion during the course of the day. The bells of the monastery were to be rung to signal the canonical hours, the mechanical clock was the technology that could provide precision to these rituals of devotion. And indeed, it did. But what the monks did not foresee was that the clock is a means not merely of keeping track of the hours, but also of synchronizing and controlling the actions of men. And thus, by the middle of the 14th century... The clock had moved outside the walls of the monastery and brought a new and precise regularity to the life of the workman and the merchant. The mechanical clock, as Lewis Mumford wrote, made possible the idea of regular production, regular working hours, and a standardized product. In short, without the clock, capitalism would have been quite impossible. The paradox, the surprise, and the wonder are that the clock was invented by men who wanted to devote themselves more rigorously to God. It ended as the technology of greatest use to men who wished to devote themselves to the accumulation of money. In the eternal struggle between God and mammon, the clock unpredictably favored the latter. That's what Postman had to say about the clock which really informs us on this idea of how there are unintended consequences to what we're doing, that there are things that will never be the same when you introduce something new, a new piece of technology to it. Now, later in the, in the book, Technopoly, Postman includes an additional detail to the story of the unintended consequence of the invention of the clock. The transformation of the clock from an instrument of religious observance to an instrument of commercial enterprise is something is sometimes, excuse me, given a specific date. He says it's 1370 when King Charles V ordered all citizens of Paris to regulate their private, commercial, and industrial life by the bells of the royal palace clock, which struck every 60 minutes on the hour. 
which is usually what we think of, right? Like cuckoo clocks, they strike at the top of every hour. <laughs> All churches in Paris were similarly, 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 it's a kind of a funny word to say when you've been talking for a while, similarly required to regulate their clocks in disregard of the canonical hour. So now, now their clocks were set by the, the royal palace's clock, not according to the canonical hours, not according to prayer time, but according to the king's time. Here is a clear example of a tool being employed to loosen the authority of the central institution of medieval life, Postman says. Tell me that's not fascinating. Tell me that's not extremely interesting. The clock and how it started off as an invention in the church to help man pray, and it ended up driving all of our lives. And now, do you ever associate the clock with church? Well, maybe only when you're looking at it to get out because you're tired of the pastor rambling on and on, right? Even when the church is doing its own thing, even when the church is not importing the, the world's ways into the church life, but it's actually inventing its own procedures and tools and things like this to aid in devotion, the technology that's used still can have pro profound impacts on our life. To quote Postman yet again, a new technology does not add or subtract something. It changes everything. In the year 1500, he says, 50 years after the printing press was invented, we did not have old Europe plus the printing press. We had a different Europe, altogether different. After television, the United States was not America plus television. Television gave a new colorization to every political campaign, to every home to every school, to every church, to every industry. And that is why the competition among media is so fierce. Surrounding every technology are institutions whose organization, not to mention their reason for being, reflects the worldview promoted by the technology. Therefore, when an old technology is assaulted by a new one, institutions are threatened. Do you get that? When a technology is threatened, an institution is threatened. When you're shifting from, from sending a snail mail letter to now sending an email to now sending a text to now sending a direct message, every time that technology shifts, that media shifts, the one media is assaulting the other one and institutions are being threatened. When institutions are threatened, Postman continues, a culture finds itself in crisis. This is serious business, he says, which is why we learn nothing when educators ask, will students learn mathematics better by computers than by textbooks? And this is familiar, right? Schools are still having these questions, these debates, as they're introducing iPads and they're introducing Chromebooks. Will it aid the student to be a better student, right? And, and Postman says, this is the wrong question. And he gives another example. Or when preachers, ha, 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 hitting home. When preachers ask, 
can we reach more people through television than we can through radio? Now we can add, can we reach more people through the internet than we can through television? Can we reach more people through virtual worship, live stream through Facebook or YouTube than we can even if we had real in-person worship where people had to come to our building? Pastor, and I heard this, many pastors have since COVID started, Pastor, I noticed that we get way more views on our live stream than we could ever fit people into the parish. Pastor, we only have 50 people here a Sunday. I saw that there was 786 views on our worship service. Now, if you want to know more about that, revisit another, an older episode where Pastor Sean Kilgo explained to us that those views that you're seeing aren't actual views. It wasn't like someone sat through an hour-long worship service. They could have paused for a moment on Facebook, just paused for a single delayed second on the live stream and Facebook counted it as a view. So those are inflated, but that's not even the point. Postman is saying that the question is already wrong to ask whether we can reach more people through television than through radio. And here's why we're going to get to that. Because this is precisely what people are asking. Postman says, in asking their practical question, and, and Americans are Mm, we're the kings of practical questions. We are a pragmatic people. If it's not practical, why are we doing it, right? We, this is how we think. In asking their practical questions, Postman says, preachers and others are like the house dog munching peacefully on the meat while the house is looted. Now, perhaps some of them, he says, know this and do not especially care that the house is being looted. After all, a nice piece of meat offered graciously does take care of the problem of where the next meal will come from. But, he says, for the rest of us, it cannot be acceptable to have the house invaded without protest or at least without awareness that we're being robbed. That's his language, looted. Looted. Is virtual church robbing us of something? It seems to be that we're focused on the positive benefit. What's the detriment? What are we being robbed of? That's really what we're getting at. That's the question. What are we being robbed of? And then Postman offers a better way, as a good critic always should. Now, maybe you've seen me post this over on my Facebook page or something. I am not a fan. I think we, we all need to do better at this. If you're going to offer a criticism, stop long enough, especially in the world of social media, stop long enough to actually think, can I offer a solution? If I'm going to say something shouldn't be, instead of just complaining, because that's all it is, right? If you just, oh, that shouldn't be the case. If you're going to say something that shouldn't be, can you offer something that should be? Can you create a solution? We are to be sub-creators. Our God is a creator. This is a side note. But just do this. And Postman does this. So he says, don't just, don't ask that question. He doesn't just say, don't ask that question. He says, ask this one instead. Okay. Postman. What we need to consider about the computer 
has nothing to do with its efficiency as a teaching tool. So you consider whether iPads are good in the, in the classroom or not. It has nothing to do with its efficiency as a tool. And this is, this is eerily, uncannily similar to what we're dealing with with virtual church. And he wrote this long before you could live stream something. What we need to consider about the computer has nothing to do with its efficiency as a teaching tool. We need to know in what ways it's altering our conception of learning and how, in conjunction with television, it undermines the old idea of school. He's talking about the school example. And now here's the church example. A preacher, and I, I, Pastor Bramwell, I would add the Christian, you, listening to this, a preacher or Christian who confines himself to considering how a medium can increase his audience will miss the significant question. In what sense do new media alter what is meant by religion, by church, even by God? Let me say that again. This is what Postman says. A preacher who confines himself to considering how a medium can increase his audience, get the gospel out to more people, he will miss the significant question, which is this. In what sense do new media alter what's meant by words like religion, church, even by what's meant by God? These are fundamental, paramount concepts of who we are as Christians. Have you thought about that? How is virtual church changing what is meant by the term church? What is meant by the actual thing, church? When I say church, what do I mean? What do I mean now compared to what, what I meant pre-COVID? What am I talking about? How is virtual church changing our understanding of what Scripture teaches. When Jesus says, where two or three are gathered, there I am, do you think he means gathered together physically? Or in a world that now knows internet worship services, YouTube, Facebook, and all these sorts of things, has it already already changed our understanding of what Jesus means when he says, gather together and there I am. Is it now a spiritualized definition apart from the physical? Have we removed the physicality by doing virtual church, by being proponents of this medium how have we altered what God's Word says? How is online worship turning us all into spiritualists and fanatics? And we don't even realize that it's happening. <sighs> oh, good things to consider. Good questions that are helping us equip our mind. We're exciting our imagination as we're wondering, how are we altering? What are we doing? How dangerous is this? And now, should we really be doing it? We'll continue the conversation in just a moment. We'll be back right after this break. Don't, don't go away.
Concord Matters is the program where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, Christ-confessing Concordians read through and discuss the Book of Concord, which is our Lutheran confession of faith drawn from Holy Scripture, so that you too may be of one mind and confess with Christ. Be sure to listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Central on KFUO Radio or anytime on KFUO.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Until we convene for Concord again, keep confessing, church. We are talking technology and the church. I'm your host, the Reverend Tyrell Bramwell. You're listening to Cross Defense. You've been listening to Cross Defense, I hope, for the last hour. We're coming up on the end of the hour. We've got about 18, 20 minutes or so to talk more about technology, to talk about virtual church, and whether or not we have considered that it is not just providing benefits, but it is also providing deficits. That there are positives and there are negatives. That technology does stuff, it also undoes stuff. That's what we're talking about. Before the break, I asked that question of, have you thought about how technology, the virtual church, could be changing, altering our understanding of what Scripture teaches? Postman asked the question of whether a preacher who confines himself to considering how a medium can increase his audience, whether he's missing the significant question, and that is, in what sense do new, me- new media alter what is meant by religion, by church, and even by God? He asked that question in his conversation about technology in his book, Technopoly. So now we're really getting into it with virtual church. And I asked you to think about what Jesus says when he says, where two or three are gathered, there I am. Does he mean gathered? Like physically gathered? What's he mean by that? And did that have a question mark with that statement before the rise of things like radio and television and the internet and now live streaming or not. When in Hebrews 10 you read that you are not to fail to get gather together as is the habit of some, but to gather all the more so to encourage one another, especially as you see the day drawing near, that's my paraphrase. Does that mean in our age of online worship that we're actually supposed to gather together when we see the day drawing near, and that day means Judgment Day, of course. How has virtual gathering altered the clearly intended meaning of the word gather? Which, the clear intended meaning of gather is physically gather. You gather stuff together in reality. It's not this, well, we're gathered together virtually on our computer screens, even though we're sitting thousands of miles apart. Hebrews tells us that when with our eyes wide open by the Holy Spirit, do we see the signs that we're living in the end times, as you see the the day drawing near, judgment day, when we see things like plagues, pandemics, that we're actually supposed to go to church. Yeah, yeah. In In a time of plague, as we see the end drawing near and we see the signs of Judgment Day coming, that we are actually supposed to get together. And and don't think that Jesus didn't know that when he said where two or three are gathered. I mean, this is the guy who walked in the time of leprosy. He was on earth when you could get a skin disease when you were close to someone that would make your limbs fall off, right? Don't think God, when he inspired the writer to the Hebrews to write this 
chapter 10, verse what 19 to 25 gets into this, that God didn't know the history. They didn't know that we were going to live through black plagues and bubonic plagues and AIDS and COVID. He knew that. And yet he still says clearly in this text that when we see the end drawing near, when we experience a pandemic, we are actually supposed to get together. Sure, sure, responsibly, cautiously, carefully, Nothing in the text says we're supposed to be reckless. That's, again, a side point. That It's a distraction from the actual point, the actual argument. We're actually supposed to gather together. Why? To receive comfort. Not only from Christ, who is present with us, where two or three are gathered, where the assembly is, where the church is. Not only from Christ, who's there as he promised, to serve us with his gospel word as it's preached to us by one of his under-shepherds who he called and sent to us so we would have that guarantee, that assurance that this is what God would have us hear. Not only with Christ in his very own body and blood poured from his chalice, but also that we could receive comfort from the other members the other Christians who are gathering with us, going through the same thing that we're going through, experiencing a pandemic, experiencing a war, experiencing whatever. Other people, just like me, just like you, who know the threats to our body and soul and who can encourage us in the truth of God's word despite the seeming sky falling down. That was really bad English, but you get the point. How has the invention of digital church altered our understanding of God's word? This is a serious question. And I want to know, are we thinking it through? Have you thought this through, my friend? I fear. I'm afraid that we're ignorantly participating in the invention of our time's clock. Creating for our children and our future neighbors a confusing world where the word church, assembly, gathering doesn't have the same meaning as it did in Scripture. Where it will be spiritualized even when in Scripture it was not intended to be spiritualized. Now, the following questions and answers, well, it's really a statement and then a question, were written down in an explanation of the common service in 1908. In this book, an explanation of the common service, that's the divine service, we read this. Distinguish between the private and public worship. Private worship, this is like, this is like a, a teacher telling a student, distinguish between the private and public worship. Now the student says, private worship is the communion of the individual soul with God. That's private worship. Makes sense. The individual soul, God, privately between me and God. Think of this as you know, your prayer life, your devotion life. Public worship is the common and united worship of believers, plural, in the unity of the body of Christ as they are assembled in the church. 
Interesting. Now a question, still in the book. Is this distinction important? The answer, yes. For there are indispensable elements of true worship in which no one can engage except in common with others. Whoa, what? Read that again. Yes, I will. There are indispensable elements of true worship in which no one can engage except in common with others. Public worship is, moreover, an apostolic rule, a permanent institution, and accords with the universal practice of the church, the church Catholic, the church universal. The writer of the epistle to the Hebrews most beautifully exhorts to common worship in chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. An explanation of the common service published in 1908, published before the Spanish flu pandemic. It's this biblical understanding of private and public worship that helped Christians navigate the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. They didn't have the internet to even consider as an alternative to getting together. What did they do? Pastors encouraged fathers to lead their households in private devotion, private prayer life, to read scripture together privately. And while they did all of that, while they maintained their home life, their home prayer life, their private life, while they did all that, they lamented about being separated from the preaching of Scripture and the administration of the sacrament. Of course they did. They lamented and they longed to be reunited with other Christians at the altar. How hungry are we to be reunited with each other at the Lord's table? How hungry are we? How much have we noticed the absence and craved the resuming of the indispensable elements of true worship in which no one can engage except in common with others? Perhaps, perhaps I posit, virtual church isn't actually doing us that much good. While it's attempting to, the motive is good. The initial practical question and, and posed answer is good-ish. Or perhaps it's changing the way we think about church and what it means to live together. Altering that definition to mean live alone in concert with other people living alone. Perhaps virtual online church is actually the tearing down of Chesterton's fence, G.K. Chesterton's fence. He writes, in the matter of reforming things, as distinct from deforming them, ah, positives and negatives, there is one plain and simple principle, a principle which will probably be called a paradox. There exists in such a case a certain institution or law, let us say, for the sake of simplicity, a fence or a gate erected across a road. The more modern type of reformer goes gaily up to it and says, I don't see the use of this fence anymore. Let us clear it away. To which the more intelligent type of reformer will do well to answer, if you don't see the use of it, I certainly won't let you clear it away. Go away and think first. Then, when you can come back and tell me that you do see the use of it, I may allow you to destroy it. <laughs> Are you hearing this? This paradox rests on the most elementary common sense. The gate or fence did not grow there. It was not set up by some, I can't even say this word he has here, 
somnambulists. Well, that's fancy. Someone look it up and tell me what it means. Who built it in their sleep. Probably has something to do with being awake in your sleep. It is highly improbable that it was put there by escaped lunatics who were for some reason loose in the street. Some person had some reason for thinking it would be a good thing for somebody for that fence to be there. And until we know what the reason was that caused the fence to be built, we really cannot judge whether the reason was reasonable. It is extremely probable that we have overlooked some whole aspect to the question. If something set up by human beings like ourselves seems to be entirely meaningless and mysterious. This is profound. There are reformers who get over this difficulty by assuming that all their fathers were fools. But if that be so, Chesterton says, we can only say that folly, foolishness, appears to be a hereditary disease. But the truth is that nobody has any business to destroy a social institution until he has really seen it as an historical institution. If he knows how it arose and what purpose it was supposed to serve, he may really be able to say that they were bad purposes, that they have since become bad purposes, or that they are purposes which are no longer served. But if he simply stares at the thing as a senseless monstrosity that has somehow sprung up in his path, it is he and not the traditionalist who is suffering from an illusion. Oh my goodness, profound upon profound postman and Chesterton delivering the goods. Mm. Okay, so uh, I'm getting excited. Sorry about that. But let's now dive into Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as I promised we would, and read a, a portion from Life Together, focusing on his understanding, his teaching about the physicality of life together in the church. He says, in the period between the death of Christ and the day of judgment, when Christians are allowed to live here in visible community with other Christians, we have merely a gracious anticipation of the end time. It is by God's grace that a congregation is permitted to gather visibly around God's word and sacrament in this world. Not all Christians partake of this grace. The imprisoned, the sick, the lonely, who live in the diaspora, the dispersion, the proclaimers of the gospel in heathen lands stand alone. They know that visible community is grace. And I can tell you, even as serving in America, I served in some very isolated places. My former members, I'm no longer at my church where I was serving most recently, they know, if they're listening, they understand this. We are very much cut off from the rest of the synod, from the rest of the church. Bonhoeffer continues, they pray with the psalmist, I went with the throng and led them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Psalm 42, 4. But they remain alone in distant lands, a scattered seed according to God's will. Yet what is denied them as a visible experience, they grasp more ardently in faith. Hence, in the spirit of the Lord's day, Revelation 1.10, the exiled disciple of the Lord, John, the author of the Apocalypse, celebrates the worship of heaven with its congregation in the loneliness of the island of Patmos. He sees the seven lampstands that are the congregations, the seven stars that are the angels of the congregations, and in the midst and above it all, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, in his great glory 
as the risen one. He strengthens and comforts John by his word. That is the heavenly community in which the exile participates on the day of his Lord's resurrection. The physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. With great yearning, the imprisoned apostle Paul calls his beloved son in the faith, Timothy, to come to him in prison in the last days of his life. He wants to see him again and have him near. Paul has not forgotten the tears Timothy shed during their final parting, 2 Timothy 1.4. Thinking of the congregation in Thessalonica, Paul prays night and day most earnestly that we may see you face to face, 1 Thessalonians 3.10. The aged John knows his joy in his own people will only be complete when he can come to them and speak to them face to face instead of using paper and ink. 2 John 12, I would say instead of using a camera and Facebook Live. The believer need not feel any shame when yearning for the physical presence of other Christians as if one were still living too much in the flesh. If someone says, oh, you're not, you don't have enough faith, you're still, you're still clinging too much to your, to your, your, your flesh, to the church being a building, all this kind of, no, nonsense. Feel no shame. A human being is created as a body. The Son of God appeared on earth in the body for our sake and was raised in the body. In the sacrament, the believer received the Lord Christ in the body, and the resurrection of the dead will bring about the perfected community of God's spiritual, physical creatures. Spiritual, physical, hyphenated. We are both. Therefore, the believer praises the Creator, the Reconciler, and the Redeemer, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for the bodily presence of the other Christian. The prisoner, the sick person, the Christian living in the diaspora recognizes in the nearness of a fellow Christian a physical sign of the gracious presence of the triune God. In their loneliness, both the visitor and the one visited recognizes in each other the Christ who is present in the body. They receive and meet each other as one meets the Lord in reverence, humility, and joy. They receive each other's blessings and the blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if there is so much happiness and joy, even in a single encounter of one Christian with another, what inexhaustible riches must invariably open up for those who by God's will are privileged to live in daily community life with other Christians. All right, we're going to leave it right there. We're out of time. I'm so sorry. I am so, so sorry. We got to put down the microphone and let you on with the rest of your day. But we did get Bonhoeffer in to teach us about life together, a community, the physical blessings of being together. We heard from Neil Postman about technology and what it does to the to the world, to the church, to anybody who's using it, that there are positives and negatives. We even got a little G.K. Chesterton in there. How about that? I will talk to you guys next week. God's blessings and Christ be with you. Cross Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at kfuo.org.